In the 1960s, the standard method for high jump was the Western roll. Um, uh, until the 1968 Olympics, when Dick Fosbury ran at the bar at a curve, turned his back to the bar, and flipped over head first, uh, performing the, the first Fosbury flop, which from that point on became the standard as he won the gold, uh, set world records with this kind of unconventional new method. It was a game-changing moment for high jump. Um, you'll have to forgive me, our, our kind of resident sporty minister is away at the moment, and um, that's the, the, the best kind of game-changing moment I could think of. Um, uh, there are lots, lots of kind of examples you've got in probably kind of any sport. Uh, and you could look at kind of at a bigger picture, game-changing moments in history. But what we're going to be doing over the next three weeks is going even bigger picture than that. Uh, what are the game-changing moments between us and God? And in particular, we're going to be spending the next three weeks looking at kind of from three different angles at the cross of Christ and how that changes the game when it comes to God, how, how it changes the way that we relate to God. Um, today, in particular, we'll be looking at righteousness, the, the righteousness of God from uh, Romans 3. And these are verses that have been game-changing in history. They, they've changed the course of history. They, they were kind of one of the foundational verses of the Reformation. But more importantly than that, they're truths that change the very way that we relate to God. So I'm really excited for this, this series to be diving into the kind of the, the game-changing moments in our relationship with God. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're going to dive into Romans 3. So would you join me in prayer as we, as we pray, uh, as we yeah, dive in? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the uh, beauty and the goodness of what Jesus has done on, in his death and resurrection. And we pray that um, as we're reminded of that today, that it would lift our hearts. And for those that, um, for whom it's new, I pray that you would uh, make it clear. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Um, to understand any good game-changing moment, you need a state of play. You need to understand where things are at at that moment. What's the standard method for high jump at the time? Uh, is everyone doing scissor kicks or western rolls? What, what is it? Well, when it comes to getting right with God, the field that is painted is actually pretty devastating. Uh, it would be like looking out to the Olympics and seeing not even one runner finishing the race. It, the assessment we're given when it comes to righteousness before God is this. No one righteous no exceptions. Uh, the Jewish Christians that Paul was writing to here might have been tempted to think that they were the exception to the rule. When they read uh, Old Testament quotes like the ones he lists above, I don't know if you saw that in your Bible, but the, the kind of the uh, eight verses before that are just a series of Old Testament quotes all pointing to the same problem, that there is no one righteous in verse 10. That in verse 12, 12, that all have turned away that there is no one who does good, not even one. Although, and the Jewish Christians at the time, they might read something like that and they think, they'd look out to the world and they say, so true, there's no one righteous, not out there. You see all these people kind of doing all sorts of wrong things, all the while assuming that they were the exceptions to the rule. No one is righteous unless they're taught how to be righteous. All have turned away except for God's chosen people. No one does good unless they have God's good law. See, they were the ones to whom God had revealed the way of righteousness. God had given them his law, 
And so in a sense, they, they had the path to righteousness. The problem that none of them admitted was that not one of them was actually keeping God's law as they should. Which is why Paul concludes uh, in, in verse 20, that therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. He's saying, if you're honest with yourself, you know that you don't really keep the law. That the law is more of a, a diagnostic to help you reach that same conclusion, to help you realize that none of us are actually living up to God's standard. That none of us are, are actually living our lives as we should, as we were designed to live, as we were intended to live. That same conclusion, no one is righteous, with no exceptions. And when we're honest with ourselves about keeping God's commandments, it doesn't lead us to believe that we're the exception to the rule. It makes us conscious of our sinfulness, of our need, of our helplessness to save ourselves. And so having given all these quotes from the law to, to show them this, he, he concludes with, um, in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that is to say, it's not talking about just everyone out there, it's talking to you. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And then, as we read before, then no one will be declared righteous by works of the law. That is to say, let's be clear here, when the Old Testament says, there's no one righteous, that's talking about you too. So that's where Paul starts, and no one righteous with no exceptions. And there's two things I want to say about that. The first is that that's a really loving thing for him to, to do. For Paul to say, you are not the exception to the rule, there's no one righteous, no exceptions. That sounds harsh, but telling the truth is, is the most loving thing that he can do. Uh, some of you have heard this, I was, I was explaining to the youth group the other day, um, this same idea. I, I got them to imagine kind of walking out of church after this and, and seeing someone wandering down from the train station with, with a big paper map open in front of them, turning it up this way and that. They're clearly lost and they look relieved to see you, a local. And they say, look, I've been walking for hours. Which way do I need to go to get to the Eiffel Tower? Now, if you know anything about the Eiffel Tower, you know it's in France, opposite side of the globe. So, of course, what they need to hear is the reality of the situation, that they can't get there by walking. Because once they work that out, then they can start to ask the right questions. Okay, so how do I get there? Is there a plane? How long is it going to take? How much do I need to save for tickets? Because they might walk for as long as they like, but they're not going to get to the Eiffel Tower. And when it comes to God, uh, people can try as hard as they like to be the exception to the rule, uh, but it won't do them any good to pour all of their efforts into that. Uh, the best thing to, to do is to, to realize the, the state of play, realize the reality of the situation, and to be able to see the level playing field, realize the need for another way. Because that, at that point, can you start to ask the right sorts of questions. And so, just before we move on, let me, in love, just gently remind you that you and I, we're not the exceptions to the rule either. Because there's a lot of ways that we can slip into that way of thinking. How many times do we hope that God looks with kindness upon us because of our, our church attendance or our perseverance through faith in a really hard time or, or prayer or our hard work? And I know that there, there are many of the commandments that you do keep. You probably can resist stealing the, the, the rake that's outside of your neighbor's house. Or, uh, 
Uh, you can probably get through tomorrow without telling an outright lie if you set your mind to it. But, um, there's many commands that you might keep, but the Bible's assessment remains the same. No one is righteous. No exceptions. And so understanding that, understanding this kind of state of play to begin, uh, helps us to begin to write, ask the right sorts of questions. Just like realizing you can't walk to the Eiffel Tower. If I can't be right with God by keeping the law, or by my hard work, or by my church attendance, or whatever else it is, then, then how do I get right with God? Is there another way? Because if we approach the situation from what we can do, the situation looks dire, hopeless, helpless. But Jesus changes the game completely. And we see that as we keep on reading. We're up to verse 20, 21 now. It starts with the words, but now. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that, that they were the most, two most wonderful words in the whole of Scripture, but now. But now is the announcement of a new era, an announcement that the game has changed. Douglas Moo puts it like this. He says, uh, but now marks the end of the old era of sin's, of sin's domination and the new era of Christ's salvation has begun. But now, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness have, of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. We saw that by our nature, by our efforts, there are no exceptions to the law. No one is righteous. But he says now, uh, there's a new kind of righteousness that is made known, a righteousness apart from the law. I keep reading with me to verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Isn't that such a, a, a better way of relating to God? Um, one that doesn't rely on our hard work and our efforts, but on Jesus Christ and what he has done. That, that all who believe might be saved. That is the great game changer when it comes to righteousness with God. If righteousness before, before God is impossible by our nature and by our efforts, then all our hope is in Jesus and only in Jesus. All we can do is fall on Him in faith. And the great comfort in that, I think, is, is that the heart of the Christian message is not about what you can do to get to God, but about what God has done to come to you. That even your faith is, is not, not a factor. It's, it, sorry, even the quality of your, it's not about the quality of your faith. It's about Christ's saving work. At the very beginning of the Reformation, Martin Luther was preparing to lecture on Romans when he had a realization. Luther had wrestled for a long time with his own feelings of inadequacy. He felt like he had never done enough to please God. No matter how hard he tried, other people looked at him and thought he was a saint among men, but, but he always felt that, that sense that he could never do enough. And he, he kind of felt like anyone who thought otherwise just didn't have a big enough view of God. He thought, um, if you understood the holiness of God, the, the, the magnitude of God, uh, then how, how could you feel like that's enough? And so when he read for the first time, as he was preparing to teach on Romans about righteousness through faith, he describes that like a, a conversion experience, like he understood God for the first time, that God justifies not, not the hardest working or the conscientious confessors or those that pay enough indulgences but sinners who trust in Jesus. 
Over time, they became verses that shaped the doctrine of the Reformation. He, he later articulated it in the phrase, it's become famous in Latin for some reason, uh, which is simul justus et peccator, which translates to simultaneously justified and a sinner. That was a key that unlocked the theology laid out in the Bible. With that frame of reference, the rest of the New Testament made sense. At, at the same time, justified and a sinner. It's not a choice between one or the other. You don't have to escape sin. You don't have to become sinless um, or to atone by your hard work for all your sin to be justified, to be made right in God's sight. You can be justified even though you're a sinner, even though you continue to do the wrong thing. And the reality is that all of us will continue to do the wrong thing. But you can be justified not because of your hard work, but because of what Christ has done on the cross. So that's, that's the, the great game-changing moment we're looking at today, is, is the, how the cross of Christ makes righteousness before God possible. That righteousness is, is not by our hard work, but by, uh, through, through faith in Christ to all who believe. The last question we need to ask is, how is that possible? This is the third part of understanding any great game-changing moment. How, how are the you know, what are the mechanics behind flopping over the bar that mean that he can jump so much higher than the rest of them? Or, or um, as we look at this game-changing moment, uh, Paul, Paul similarly gives us a peek behind the curtain to show just how could that be possible? How, how could God, the perfectly just God, see us as righteousness, righteous despite our shortfallings? How could the perfectly just judge justify the wicked? Paul, Paul tells us as we keep reading, verse 25, um, if you follow along with me, says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That language, sacrifice of atonement, is really significant. Atonement is the language of reparation, of, of making amends. And the sacrifice of atonement is a, is a throwback to the priestly duties on the Day of Atonement in ancient Jewish um, ritual, where, where an animal was offered as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for the people and for the turning away of God's wrath against sin. And when we hear kind of a, a sacrifice made to God, we can conjure up a picture of a barter with a, a temperamental, with, with the temperamental gods or of a, a bribery with God to appease a bad temper. But the sacrifice of atonement was... Um, was a way for Israel to recognize God's righteous anger against sin and evil and to acknowledge that for justice to be done, there had to be uh, consequences for that, for, for, for it to be truly justice. Uh, evil couldn't just go on, uh, sin couldn't just continue. Uh, God couldn't continue to be offended in that way um, without there being consequences. And so for Christ to be the sacrifice of atonement, it, it's a picture of him putting himself in our place, bearing the weight of our sin, dying our death for us. And only in the just punishment being redirected can a just God be rightly satisfied to call us righteous. That, that's why Paul can go on to say that this is a demonstration of God's righteousness. I don't know if you heard that, that language, it comes up a couple of times. 
Because the cross is the only way that, that the justice and righteousness of God makes sense if sinners are forgiven. He says, as we keep reading, halfway through verse 2 now, um, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That is to say that uh, sin hadn't really properly been dealt with, even if they had their kind of sacrificial system. Um, it wasn't final, it wasn't complete. Um, he, Verse 26, keep reading, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How can God be just and yet justify um, sinners just, just for their faith in Jesus? Well, that, that, that's the answer. It's on the cross. Um, God takes the consequence of sin upon himself. So that's it. God is a perfectly just judge, perfect in righteousness, and yet He allowed sin to go unpunished. That's, that's a problem that um, many Christians have wrestled with. It. If you read through the Old Testament, it's something I don't think they fully grasp. Many of the Psalms cry out to God, why does injustice continue in our world? Why doesn't God bring justice to the wicked? And, and there's their answer now. God is righteous. God does not turn a blind eye to sin or wickedness, but he demonstrates his, his justice and his righteousness in bringing justice on the cross. Not by punishing the wicked, but by dying in their place so that anyone who has faith in Jesus might be saved. So, my last question is, where does all of that leave you? I think it means that you can rest entirely on the safe and merciful grace of God. If you are someone who is anxious about salvation, you can pour out your anxieties on Him because there is nothing you need to do for salvation but trust in Him. On the other end of things, if you're someone who's proud of your salvation, if you, if you look around and, and feel like you have uh, a, a superiority above others because um, of kind of your maybe moral goodness, well, the same thing applies. You, you, it's not your work that earns salvation. You are not the exception. Christ is. And so trust all the work of saving to Him. Because we've seen today that our first kind of great game changer is in the righteousness of God. We started by seeing the state of play, seeing the level playing field, that, that no one is righteous with no exceptions. And that's a really important foundation to understand because then we can understand how, how world-changing it is when the announcement comes that righteousness is given a, apart from our hard work, apart from works, apart from the law, but righteousness is given through faith in Christ to all who believe. Because that introduces a whole new way of thinking, one which doesn't center on what we can do for God, on um, doing more, on working harder, on being better, but one that centers on what God has done for us. And how is that possible? We're, we're given a, a peek behind the scenes to see um, where we're, we're taken to the heart of the cross, uh, God's wrath being poured out on Him, turned away from us. And in that, we're given assurance that righteousness before God is a sure thing in Christ for all who have faith in Him. And what glorious news that is. Would you pray with me now, praising God for, for that great thing? A compassionate and gracious God, 
You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we admit our guilt before you. We recognize that we come to you with nothing. And we pray that you would, um, that because of what Christ has done, that, that we would be right before you, that um, we, we would be able to be righteous in your sight. And we thank you for that great news that despite our shortfallings, we pray that, pray that you'd help us to rest entirely on you, to trust all the work of saving to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.